I'm guessing you've probably heard about Bitcoin. There's probably some guy at your work or maybe your cousin, maybe your brother, maybe your sister, maybe your sister's friend who says they've made a ton of money on Bitcoin and you should join in. Well, today I might be pouring a little bit of cold water on that idea. I'm talking to a computer expert who walks me through some of what he sees as the structural problems with Bitcoin and makes a pretty good argument on why you probably shouldn't rush in right now. It's a Bitcoin episode of Science Island on KACR 96.1, but be warned, I come not to praise Bitcoin, but to bury it. Leah, are you a Bitcoiner? Nope. <laughs> are you, Grant? I am not a Bitcoiner. Uh, I think back in 2010, I had this kind of passing interest in it. And I think at that point, it was like a dollar, two dollars, maybe five dollars of Bitcoin. And I thought, maybe I should just buy a couple hundred dollars just to see what would happen mm. and now that bitcoin would be worth like six or seven thousand dollars each oh man so what you're saying is you're really smart in theory i i <laughs> i missed something right i missed the boat I could have yeah, retired. you were you were close though. You were closer than i was i i feel like a lot of people have this um perception of digital currency where, you know, already we're a step removed from our personal wealth where we use an app and we see our money and say, you know, uh, a money market fund or in our bank account. And it's like, it's already not very physical. And then digital currency, I feel like takes that one step further separation wise. And I think that makes a lot of people nervous. Well, so here's what happened to me psychologically after I, I did not buy this lottery ticket. I have just been kind of rooting against Bitcoin ever since. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've found reasons why it doesn't make any sense and why it's going to fall apart or why these people are not investing their money well. Uh, I, I became a Bitcoin partisan on the other side because I missed my golden ticket. So this entire show needs to be looked through that prism. I'm just a bitter man that I'm not walking around as a millionaire right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll keep that in mind. You're not purely objective. And I, I feel like pretty early on in the Bitcoin story, there was coverage about how, say, for example, the Winklevoss twins were really buying in and that's just generally off-putting, right? Right. Like, you don't want to be on the same side of thing as the Winklevoss twins. I don't know. In the Facebook story, <laughs> exactly. who do you want to land on the side of? It's tricky. It's tricky. Like, Zuckerberg, Timberlake, the Winklevoss twins, or Spider-Man. <laughs> I know. So many characters. But... um you know, for the sake of, of argument, I feel like it's really great that you decided to cover the topic, seeing as you have some complicated feelings about it. So big asterisks on that, Leah. I found a huge Bitcoin skeptic. Great. So did you feel guy, good when you found him? I did. 
this guy's name is Nicholas Weaver, and he's actually a security expert, but he started dealing with Bitcoin because uh, people were suddenly having to pay their ransoms on their computer viruses using Bitcoin. So he started to look into the space. Wow. And he describes himself as sort of a libertarian, which, you know, would, would be one reason why people are interested in Bitcoins is politics. But he sees a lot of limitations there. And he's also very skeptical of this argument that Bitcoin will collapse, but something really interesting will happen with blockchain. Uh, he kind of thinks that that's a dead end, too. So I interview him. I talk to him about that. Maybe there's some Bitcoin people who are listening now who are already getting angry at me. So I, I just want to say this. I've decided that rather than be a partisan one way or the other on this, the best thing I could do as someone who covers this space is just to observe what happens. So I'm no longer pro-Bitcoin. I'm no longer anti-Bitcoin. I'm, I'm just here watching what's going on. Wow. This is a sea change moment that we're all witnessing, and I'm honored to be a part of that, Grant. It's probably just too early to tell. All right, so this is my discussion with Nicholas Weaver about blockchain and Bitcoin. I am talking to Dr. Nicholas Weaver, who is a visiting lecturer at Berkeley and a computer scientist. He specializes in operating systems and networking, and we're going to be talking about Bitcoin, not in an altogether positive way, right? <laughs> I think a better way to put it is my focus is network and system security over the entire stack. So basically, I'm interested in everything from the chips to the cloud, and also in many cases, the people. So you came to my attention because I saw kind of a screed you put up on Twitter about Bitcoin. And before we get into the specifics of that, why don't you tell me uh, when you first heard about Bitcoin? Uh, we've been actually working in this area in the research group I'm in and me personally since uh, about 2012, 2013, when we were seeing attackers compromising computers in order to install Bitcoin mining code. And even then, I realized that it was interesting but useless. But now I've come to the conclusion that it is frighteningly bad. And I was hoping that it would have gone away by now, but it hasn't. Why don't you go into a little bit about what's interesting so we can build this up a little bit before we knock it down? So... The interesting idea is what if you could do a no authority electronic payment system? So the basic problem is, is I don't want a bank. I don't want somebody centralized to keep track of things due to basic, um, basic political beliefs, really. And if so, can we build a system? And... The cryptocurrencies showed that we can. It's just so grossly inefficient and has so many problems that, well, it's a bad idea. The idea is that a cryptocurrency is supposed to be censorship resistant. 
because there is no central authority involved, there's nobody who can say, you shouldn't use your cryptocurrency to buy drugs, pay off ransom, hire hitmen, and all those other things. Now, if we make the assumption that for most people that does not matter, then cryptocurrencies are provably worse than the alternatives and can never be made superior than other payment channels. So what happens is a cryptocurrency can be one of two things. It can be volatile, and that is its value is bouncing all around, or it can be stable. A volatile cryptocurrency can't work for payments because what happens is the recipient immediately goes around and converts that volatile cryptocurrency into something real. So all the sites that offer buy X with Bitcoin don't actually take Bitcoin. Instead, they go through uh, a third-party service that immediately sells the Bitcoin and gives them real money. And even networks like the drug networks that may price everything in Bitcoin are really actually pricing in dollars and just adjusting the Bitcoin price as it fluctuates up and down. You always have this mandatory currency conversion step where the recipient turns it into real money. But the sender also has to do the other thing of turning their money into cryptocurrency. And so any cryptocurrency transaction requires two currency conversion steps. Additionally, the step involved in buying the cryptocurrency is expensive. I challenge anybody to buy $500 worth of Bitcoin without either having a pre-established relationship with an exchange, using cash, or having to deal with a skeevy person-to-person -person transaction. It can't be done due to the irreversibility problem, which I flagged back in 2013. So t talk quickly about the irreversibility problem, just in layman's terms. So I actually had a, um, a write-up in Wired back in 2013. Once you use Bitcoin, you can't go back, and that is the fatal flaw. So what it means is everything online, every electronic payment system, other than the cryptocurrencies, is actually designed to be reversible. That you can go, oh crud, something bad happened, and undo, undo, undo. The undo window can be fairly short, but it exists, and this enables fraud mitigation. Oh crud, something went wrong, let's go backwards. Cryptocurrencies don't have this. Cryptocurrencies, by design, don't have reversibility because they don't want the central authorities needed to implement mandatory reversibility on everything. So what happens is to buy cryptocurrency, you can't do an electronic transaction. If you want to buy $75,000 worth of Bitcoin from me, how do I get that $75,000 from you? Either you give it to me in cash, or you do a bank transfer and let it sit for a while, or I am actually giving you credit. And 
All of these things mean that it actually takes a pre-established relationship. And if I don't do at least one of those three things as the seller of the cryptocurrency, I'm liable to get scammed. Um, Steve Wozniak just lost $75,000 this way because he had some Bitcoin that was lying around from whatever. He tried to sell it in a person-to-person -person transaction and the person paid for it with a credit card, all fine and good. He transferred the Bitcoin. And only afterwards was it discovered that the credit card was stolen. He got the charge reversed, so he was out the Bitcoin and didn't get any money. Uh, are we kind of making this argument in the ashes of Bitcoin? It was $20,000 in January. Now it's somewhere below seven last time I checked. Uh, can Bitcoin work if it's in decline, if it's losing value? Bitcoin can't work whether it's in in increasing value or losing value. The volatility means that you can't actually use it for payments. So it's value as a currency, unless you are buying drugs, hiring hitmen, or similar illegal activity, um, its value as a currency is properly zero. So I think libertarians might make the argument that there is a lot of value in having a currency which people can't trace. And even if people are spending some of it on drugs and hitmen, that that's some base level of value. So that is assuming that Bitcoin can't be traced. Bitcoin is best described as prosecution futures. Um, the privacy guarantees on Bitcoin are practically non-existent. So I think that would surprise a lot of people because this is supposed to be cryptography, you're using all these nodes on the internet and it's distributed. How can you track a Bitcoin tra transaction through all of that? Because the whole idea behind Bitcoin is you have this public ledger. So imagine a world where everybody's bank balance is posted in the public square. And if I want to pay you one Dunning-Krugerrand, I write you a check. This check gets posted in the public square and carved into a stone tablet. And now somebody can see that, oh, no, uh, Nick's balance is less and your balance is more. And that is basically how Bitcoin works, except the names are replaced with pseudonymous identifiers. So it's actually a very public system in terms of tracking payments. And the only systems that offer some guarantees of privacy are ones that either use zero-knowledge proofs or deliberately add a huge number of fake transactions in the process. And the, these fake transactions make that uh, public ledger written in stone even bigger. So let's talk about speed for a minute. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that our credit card networks handle thousands of transactions a second. I think the number is something like uh, 6,500 transactions a second. How many can Bitcoin do? And is that a number that can scale? Can Bitcoin get faster? Oh, that is a very interesting and amusing question. So the credit card system is capable of handling 100,000 plus transactions a second. They don't normally do that, but that is sort of the scaling limit. The Bitcoin system is able to handle roughly three to four transactions a second across the entire world. Um, 
And there's a subtle scaling problem here. So these um, types of systems have a limited global capacity, and this global capacity is basically allocated at auction. Now, if the demand is below the global capacity, the price is low and the transactions are effectively free. But this means it's free for spammers who just want to occupy space because every transaction is not only recorded, it is recorded in every copy of the Bitcoin blockchain forever. So you have thousands of redundant copies all holding a bit of information. So I, as a spammer, can just simply send bogus messages whenever I'm below the capacity. Whenever it's above the capacity, you get what is best described as a fee-death spiral. So what happens is you end up having an auction where only those willing to pay ever see their transactions confirmed. And this is why the Bitcoin transaction cost in December or November, December, went from effectively zero to over $30 because this was the auction price necessary to win because of the fixed supply. For the first time in a while, we can observe, I guess, an entirely free market. And that means that a lot of the stock hacks, which were made illegal 100 years ago, are kind of back in play. Do you want to kind of talk about a few of those? So a, a way to put it that uh, somebody else did that I love is the cryptocurrency community is busy speedrunning half a millennia of bad economics and scams. So we have Ponzi schemes. We've had Ponzi schemes in Bitcoin since 2012 when 7% plus of all Bitcoin at the time got invested in a Ponzi scheme run by a guy called Pirate at 40. Now we have Ponzi schemes that are explicitly advertised as Ponzi schemes. So we have the proof of weak hands 3D, the third version, because the first two had bugs, in Ethereum that's an explicit Ponzi scheme, and it's currently got $5 million invested in this Ponzi scheme. So it's a Ponzi scheme without postal reply coupons. The exchanges are rife with criminality. There's front running where the exchange will trade ahead of the customers to get the exchange advantage. There's wash trades and painting the tape where people on the exchange will exchange with themselves to make it look like the price is going up or down. We have uh, insider trading. We have credible insider trading allegations against Coinbase, not against random exchange in who knows where, but Coinbase, the number one regulated exchange located in the U.S. Every ICO that is tradable is a unregistered security that they're supposedly a token for future utility from network X that doesn't exist. But they're basically being used as a stock in network X for future value because they're tradable commodities and going up and down. And that is the definition of a security. 
And so these are not only unregulated securities, the only way you can really do an ICO legally is limit it to accredited investors. These ICOs are outright frauds in many cases. So I have two favorites. One is um, alchemy, but with blockchain. The other is 100% effective HIV vaccine with blockchain. Both of these are clearly fraudulent, and both of these are advertised by touts that could have gone during the South Sea bubble in the uh, 17th century. And then finally, we even have rare tulip bulbs in the form of cats on the blockchain that whose sole value if for buying a $100,000 rare cat is that you can turn around and hope that somebody else will buy it for 150000 So why don't you describe what these cats are? Because it's sort of astonishing. So there's this game called CryptoKitties that's written in a combination of the web browser and recorded history on the Ethereum blockchain. And what this allows you to do is get by a cat. These cats look kind of stupid. They're, it's a picture of a cartoon cat. Yeah. And you can sell them to other people for Ethereum, and that's it. So what's what's the bargain price I could get one of these cartoon cats for right now? Some you can get for cheap. It depends on the rarity. But the rarest tulips or cats have fetched over $100,000. And the reason the rare cat fetches $100,000 is somebody buys it for $100,000 and hopes that they can sell it again for $150,000. So I've lived through some bubbles in my lifetime. Uh, I guess I'll include the Beanie Baby bubble, but there was also the dot-com bubble. And historical bubbles like the tulip bubble, usually after a bubble, there's something left over. After the dot-com bubble, there was something that, that people could invest in. Is there anything that's going to be left after the Bitcoin bubble? Hopefully not, because there have been bubbles where nothing is left. The South Sea bubble left plenty of companies that just did not exist. You tulip bulbs, tulip bulbs after the crash were basically worth zero. Beanie babies after the crash were basically worth zero. And the previous run-up, so Bitcoin has actually gone through three or four bubble cycles now. Each one seems to get more intense. But the last bubble cycle, when it bubbled up to $1,000 and then dropped down to, um, to under 100 the market capitalization of Bitcoin was no different than the market capitalization of Beanie Babies at its peak. Um, the problem is, is there's basically no value in Bitcoin unless you want to buy drugs. The... System as a currency does not work for legal purposes. And for um, the non-currency use of the blockchain, the blockchain is nine orders of magnitude less efficient than something with just a smattering of uh, articulated trust. That doesn't mean nine times. That means no, to the ninth power. Yes. Bitcoin 
is burning a massive amount of electricity because it uses a system called proof of work. So the idea is that, um, that all the miners are basically wasting energy trying to find a solution to a useless problem. And so for somebody to change history, they'd have to do at least that much waste. Now this provides a measure of security and a significant one equal to the amount of basic resources wasted, the amount of power wasted, money, whatever. The problem is, is it also means that it's only the amount of stuff wasted. So the system is secure only as long as it is expensive. And this makes for very inefficient systems. So what tends to happen is you get what's called a red queen's race. So if there's profit to be had, more people pile in to the point where nobody gets a profit anymore and everybody just kind of breaks even. And that means that you have these massive, massive power consumption when the profit is high. But this also means that uh, should Bitcoin's price collapse back down to zero, basically the ecological damage stops because nobody's going to bother wasting the power on it. So there's a parallel argument which is happening with people who are into Bitcoin that this piece of the Bitcoin technology, the blockchain, is going to change the world. I'm going to read you something which was written on that. Uh, it could be possible, for instance, for voting to become virtually fraud-free and instantaneous using the blockchain. That's something that I wrote a couple years ago when I was looking into this technology, and I'm not sure I still believe that. Do you think that blockchain is a transformative technology? Uh, describe my expression. Double face. <laughs> double face palm. We're, we're recording via Skype, and I got a view of the double face palm there. So... Um, there's two different ideas. So there's the first one is the private or permissioned blockchains. And these are actually nothing. These are 20, 30, 40 year old data structures, trusted cryptographically signed hash chains. We've known how to build these for decades. And the only thing that adding the word blockchain does to those is get stupid venture capitalists and idiots to throw money at you. Then you have these public systems that's like Bitcoin, where it's supposed to be permissionless. Anybody can write to this global state and this global state can go around forever and there's no single entity that can tamper with the state. The problem is, is that's actually a lot. And so I can get that same level of distributed trust, not by burning megawatt hours, but by something that costs $500 in computers and burns the power equivalent of an incandescent light bulb. So we're left in a world where private blockchains are nothing new but a way to get suckers to throw money at you, and public blockchains are nine orders of magnitude less efficient than the alternatives. It's almost a Portlandia sketch. Stick a blockchain on it. If you want to translate that, it would be put everything in a single Google sheet that anybody can write to, but nobody can delete from. 
Um, that's all a block public blockchain is. So very persuasive arguments, assuming you're correct. Where does this all lead? Hopefully it implodes spectacularly and people will actually remember this time that it imploded spectacularly. And I hope that there's finally some government intervention in this space. Really interesting stuff, Nicholas. I appreciate you coming on the show today. That's it for Science Island. If you disagree with me or you agree with me, I'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter at Sci Island. This is KACR 96.1.